my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your killer battlebot android, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes corpse brides, killer teachers, and terrorist brains. Help me put all these body parts together so my friend can love again. We can talk about some horror movies while we work. Number 1, Bride of Reanimator, 1990, directed by Brian Usna. Herbert West continues his experiments with the less-than-enthusiastic Dan. A breakthrough is made in the reagent formula. A cop named Chapman investigates the duo and finds out they've been stealing body parts. His investigation is personal. He's looking for the people responsible for reanimating his wife. Chapman, who West reveals killed his wife, becomes violent. West kills Chapman in self-defense and reanimates him. Dr. Hill's head is reanimated again and commands the other reanimated. West, with very little help from Dan, successfully creates life by combining a bunch of women's body parts that include Dan's girlfriend Meg, who died's heart. Chaos ensues as past reanimated people in failed experiments start attacking everyone. Only Dan and his never-dead girlfriend Francesca escape with West's fate left ambiguous. Herbert West, Chapman, Dr. Hill, reanimated people, and war are the killers. West and Dan are working on bodies during a war in the beginning. Pet warning, Herbert West kills an iguana that very much seemed to be a pet. It's sad, but not all that disturbing. He does cut organs out of the unlucky lizard, but the scaly corpse looks just propish enough to not skeeve you out. Chapman not only killed his wife, he also killed a dog. Don't worry about it, even though Chapman rips the pooch's arm off, West fixes the pup by attaching Chapman's severed arm onto the dog. Now the little rascal can properly high-five, play rock-paper-scissors, and even shoot a gun. None of those things happen in the movie, but after Chapman yanks off the dog's arm and doesn't apply it to his own shoulder stump, at least a canine ends up with a human arm. I enjoyed the original Reanimator. For some reason, I didn't move on to part two. Seeing as it was directed by Brian Usna, I don't know why it took me so long to check it out. The original had a bunch of fun, practical gore. Bride still has tons of that, but now it also is jam-packed with strange, wacky flesh abominations. Brian Usna has directed some movies that don't go completely over the top with flesh creatures like The Dentist, but if he's in charge, it's a pretty safe gamble to put all your chips on yes, there will be some kind of flesh body horror creature wackiness. 
Riot of Reanimator is poorly paced. There are spots that aren't engaging. The whole inclusion of Dr. Hill feels a bit forced. There's no real reason for him to reappear in the sequel. It makes sense that he wants revenge against West, but after he's reintroduced, there's a large chunk of time where he's absent. He's gone so long that it's easy to forget that some random doctor is hanging out with Hill's head. That being said, Dr. Hill taking to the skies after bat wings are attached to his decapitated head is amazing. Where Bright of Reanimator shines is its creature designs and practical effects. All of the body parts in the movie look amazing. The work done to make the woman amalgam bride come to life is stunning. Unlike the Bride of Frankenstein, Reanimator Bride is actually into Dan, for a couple minutes at least. Having only seen the Bride of Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein's monster for being pedantic, in the movie with the same title, I always found it funny that the monster's coupling is seen as romantic. The bride is alive for all of two seconds before she starts screeching at Frankenstein's monster. She hated that combination of guys. After the monster's advances are rejected, he destroys everything and the movie's over. The bride is only alive for maybe five minutes, if I'm being generous. This section's supposed to be about the bride of Reanimator. Dan, the man who for some reason believes that the bride will act like his dead girlfriend Meg solely because her heart is used, has a living girlfriend named Francesca who seemingly is willing to stick with Dan even after learning about all the necromancer weirdness that he's involved with. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for him to still want to try and resurrect Meg. To be fair, West is the one that really pushes and completes the multi-woman. Dan shouldn't have had a new love in his life to give him a reason to want to help West. West wants to create life for science, and Dan should want to create life for love. Since Dan has Francesca, it's hard to believe he'd assist West with making the bride. Technically, he's on again, off again with Francesca, but still, she does kind of freak out and leaves the house when she finds out her reanimated dog has a human arm. It's an upgrade, Franny! Besides dog with man arm, there are oodles of insane, randomly attached together body part monsters. Most of these are shown during the climax as Wes tries to make a run out of the house through a crypt where he's been dumping experiments. The effects work is delightful and the showcase of the bizarre smashed together humans really made up for the lulls in the journey to get to them. I didn't see Screaming Mad George listed in the credits. I must have been distracted because of course George and his crew were responsible for designing all the failed experiments that appear at the end. Screaming Mad George and Brian Usna regularly work together and are a super duo. Most of the acting is mediocre at best, but Jeffrey Combs is still perfect as Herbert West. Bride of Reanimator has its highs and lows, but it never flatlines. Fans of practical effects and absurd flesh creations should definitely check this one out. Number 2, Near Dark, 1987, directed by Catherine Bigelow. A guy named Caleb falls for a girl named May. Turns out she's a vampire. She bites him and runs off. Now a vampire himself, Caleb joins up with May and the gaggle of vampires that she's a part of that's led by Jesse. The vampires kill a bunch of people, but Caleb isn't willing to kill anyone. Caleb's dad and sister eventually find him. The vampires want to eat them, but Caleb and his family escape. 
Caleb has his dad perform a blood transfusion on him, which cures his vampirism. Jesse and the gang decide not to leave well enough alone, and all of them except May end up dead while trying to get revenge. May is cured of her vampirism. Caleb and May are happy together. The vampires sans Caleb are the killers. Near Dark should be called Bill Paxton Wackiness the Movie. On one hand, you have this story of transformation, love, and vampirism. On the other, you have Bill Paxton hamming it up and murdering folks. What sounds like more fun to watch to you? A slower movie about a derpy boy named Caleb who is turned into a vampire after trying to force a girl to kiss him, who for some unknown reason he ends up with at the end, would probably be more entertaining if Adrian Pazdar didn't play the lead. He's boring and uncharismatic. He has no presence next to Vampire Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, and Joshua John Miller. Three of those actors were also in Aliens. Catherine Bigelow's future husband, James Cameron, recommended them. The love story between Caleb and May might actually be worse than Twilight. There's no chemistry between the two, and May seems barely interested in Caleb at all, unless someone is trying to kill him. The vampire posse is much more interesting without Caleb. There's the old leader Jesse, Henriksen, who fought in the Civil War, his badass girlfriend Diamondback, Goldstein, the wildcard Severin, Paxton, and the turned when he was a kid Homer, Miller. There's a part where Homer attempts to turn Caleb's kid sister into a vampire so that he'll finally have a girlfriend that's real weird. Homer first tried to make a GF vamp with May, who wasn't into his kid body even though he had an adult mind. That's totally understandable. I guess his plan with the sister was to turn her and then wait years. Look, we're both stuck in kid bodies. We have to end up together. Ugh. Even that is super messed up and disgusting. Hey vampires out there, this is why you don't turn people who are under 18. That seems to be a rule in a lot of vampire media. Homer's turning story isn't told. There's a long scene where May and Caleb hitchhike with the big rig driver. Their plan is to eat him. The driver explains how to drive a big rig in in-depth detail. Why would this drawn-out conversation make it into the movie, you might be asking? Chekhov's Big Rig. During the big showdown between Caleb and Bill Paxton, Caleb's only hope to defeat the insane Nightwalker is driving a big rig truck into him. Yeah, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. There's a ton of great special effects makeup work that stems from the vampires turning crispy in sunlight. All the vampires except May end up looking pretty burnt at some point in the movie. During the climax, when May runs away from the vampire gang, Homer runs after her and burns to death. Somehow, May survives even though she was in the sun way longer. You must burn slower the fresher your vampirism is. There's some solid gore effects as well. Surprisingly, most of the gore is due to gunshots. These vampires love guns. Caleb and May live happily ever after as humans. Their vampirism is cured after some rudimentary blood infusions in a barn. It's not explained where Caleb's dad got enough human blood to give two vampires transfusions. Maybe he's a killer. It is completely insane that a whole gang of vampires decided going after Caleb was worth dying for. Yeah, it makes sense that they want to kill him, but they could have planned their attack better. 
Caleb and his family should have stood no chance against Jesse's vamp gang. Near Dark is a fun vampire flick. It doesn't tread much new ground, but showcases what you expect to see in interesting ways. One last thing to mention, a hilarious sound effect is used multiple times when characters fall to the ground. It's that video game-esque body slapping the ground sound. I love that sound effect. Number 3, Class of 1999, 1990, directed by Mark L. Lester. Gangs are running rampant in America. After getting out of prison, Cody, a member of the Blackhearts gang, just wants to go back to high school. His brother Angel is still gangbanging and doing drugs. At the school, Cody meets Christy, the principal's daughter. The teachers aren't as they seem. Turns out they are android killing machines that are being monitored by Dr. Forrest. The android teachers kill some kids, including Angel. Cody and Christy are pursued by the teachers. The teachers spark a gang war between the Blackhearts and their rivals, the Razorheads, and kill the principal. Christy is kidnapped by the teachers. The Blackhearts and Razorheads join forces to fight the teachers. The teachers are destroyed. Dr. Forrest was killed by one of them. Cody and Christy walk out of the school together. The Blackhearts, Razorheads, Dr. Forrest, and the Android teachers are the killers. Okay, I'm not 100% sure that there were deaths by Blackheart and Razorhead hands, but they did have a big ol' shootout. The teachers showed up during it and did a bunch of killing, but the odds of there not being any gang-on-gang -gang death in the scenario is incredibly low. Class of 1999 has been on my big movie list for some time. I have no idea what prompted me to add it and was worried it was going to end up being a really bad action B movie instead of a horror movie. But Android BattleBot teachers murdering students is horror in my book. There are a surprising amount of recognizable stars in Class of 1999. There's Malcolm McDowell, Pam Greer, Joshua John Miller, and Rose McGowan. That's right, you can spot Rose McGowan if you look for a kid sitting outside of the principal's office. Oh, and yeah, the little vampire from Near Dark just happened to appear in the next movie I watched. I didn't plan on watching Joshua John Miller movies back to back. He dies in both movies too. One of the best things about Class of 1999 is the fashion. Whenever a movie decides to predict future fashion, you know that the fits are going to get interesting. The best outfit by far is Cody's. He wears a jacket over a vertical striped shirt, pants with an unrecognizable pattern, huge studded belt, and a strange tribal looking necklace. I'd be down to rock the look sans necklace. Before you leave the house, take one thing off and make sure it's that necklace. Like Near Dark, Class of 1999 suffers from a zero charisma lead. That's not completely fair to say since Cody, played by Bradley Gregg, is much more interesting and likable than Near Dark's Caleb. Gregg is still a strange pick for the role. His co-star is Tracy Lind, who plays the principal's daughter, Christy. Exposition tells the viewer that the school is an incredibly dangerous place to be. There is rampant drug use and violence on campus, which is why the android teachers are brought in. There's only three of them though, so there's a lot of blind spots in the school. In one such blind spot, Christy is almost sexually assaulted. Um, Mr. Principal, you know the school is bad news bears. Do you hate your daughter or something? 
Even after Christy and Cody, who saved her, tell you what happened, you don't seem all that bothered by the fact that your daughter was in serious danger. Why did you enroll her at this school? Malcolm McDowell played the principal, and that character isn't behind the BattleBots. Dr. Bob Forrest is. The man with the white hair, contacts, and rat tail. His mustache is black, though. His introduction will likely make you laugh out loud. He looks comically evil. He's all for android student killing machines, and it's fun to see him get his when one of his own battle bots punches his heart out of his body. The practical effects work in class of 1999 is oodles of fun. Once the cat's out of the bag that the teachers are ex-military killing machines, they ditch their human arms for destructive weapons. Each has a different arm weapon. There's a flamethrower, mini rocket launcher, and the drill claw. The latter is exactly what it sounds like, a claw that can grab onto a victim's head and keep it in place while a drill does some excavating. All of the transformations look amazing. One of the teachers goes full on robot realness, which is fun to look at, but it does look dated and a bit cheesy. Two of the androids are dispatched in creative manners. Pam Greer's flamethrower android is taken out by Cody, ludicrously throwing an axe sideways into her fuel tanks, which explode when she attempts to burn the troublemaker. Full-on robot teacher is hanged and pulled apart with the help of a forklift and chains. The other teach bot? Cody just sticks a gun in its mouth and starts blasting. Class of 1999 is a fun look into a crazy gang-riddled future as predicted by people in 1990. Turns out it's a sequel to Class of 1984, which was released in 1982. I could see someone in 1982 thinking there would be robots in 1999. Anyways, it's fun enough to check out. Number 4, Dead or Alive, 1999, directed by Takashi Miike. A cop named Jojima needs money for his dying daughter's operation, so he turns to the Yakuza for help. A guy named Ryu and his small gang steals a bunch of money from the Yakuza. The Yakuza kill a member of Ryu's gang, so he and his crew show up at a dinner and gun down the Yakuza. Jojima's partner makes himself known and is gunned down by Ryu and his gang. The partner accidentally shoots and kills Ryu's younger brother as he's dying. The gang leaves. Jojima shows up to the scene and finds out the Yakuza leader is still alive. Jojima kills him. Ryu attempts to kill Jojima as revenge for his brother, but the bomb he put in his car ends up killing his wife and daughter instead. Ryu and Jojima have a final standoff in which all of Japan is destroyed. Ryu, his gang, Jojima, and the Yakuza are the killers. No one's innocent here. Huh. Who would have thought a man with a bazooka and a guy named Ryu that inexplicably has the ability to throw a fireball would destroy Japan? Wait. So you're saying things escalated to the point where a man chucked a fireball into a rocket and the collision blew up the entirety of Japan? That's correct. It's the obvious conclusion, really. As soon as it was revealed that the cool, neo-looking character was named Ryu, I called that he would, in fact, throw a Hadouken. Okay, I did call the fireball, but I in no way expected my prediction to come true. Dead or Alive is an all-out thrill ride. Until it's not. Then it is again. It's not. Boom, it is again. It might as well be called Dead or Alive Action Roller Coaster. When the action is happening, Dead or Alive is exciting and thrilling. The first five minutes is action-packed. 
The movie starts with multiple assassinations. Someone stabbed in the neck in a bathroom, a man-eating noodles has them removed from his stomach with a shotgun, a naked woman with a big bag of cocaine is tossed off a roof, a man snorts a line of cocaine that's multiple feet long, a stripper is... Stripping. A man that looks like Neo is zooming around on a motorcycle. The first five minutes of Dead or Alive are intense. Then the movie grinds to a halt. The action is replaced with dull exposition. Is it possible to figure out what happened in the first five minutes without exposition dumps from a bland cop character? No, that doesn't mean that the uninspired exposition dumps were the only way to explain what was happening. You know what type of scene is never exciting? Interrogation scenes. The only time an interrogation scene was interesting was in The Matrix. Even though the action is only completely ridiculous in the first and last five minutes, there are wacky and interesting things that are peppered throughout the middle of the movie. Now that I think about it, it's mostly just gross, unnerving things. Takashi Miike is kind of known for that, I suppose. One of the cops informants is an adult movie maker that's working on a new video starring a dog when the cop shows up. Luckily, the cop leaves before any of that really gets going. Another awful scene is when the Yakuza leader drowns one of Ryu's friends in a small pool filled with poop after forcing himself on her. Yeah, that's not something that needs to be in a movie. Mike loves him some shock value. Shockingly enough, the Yakuza's death is uninspired and simple. Jojima shoots him. Come on, Jojima. This dude drowns someone in a poop pool. He deserves a much harsher death. Jojima is the worst. He's a terrible father. His daughter needs money for an operation. He says he'll get the money, but barely tries anything to get it. When his partner dies, Jojima has to tell his partner's wife and son the bad news and doesn't seem broken up about it in the least. It doesn't seem possible to watch Dead or Alive and root for Jojima, even after Ryu accidentally blows up Jojima's wife and daughter. Look on the bright side, at least he doesn't have to pay for that operation anymore. Ryu wanted to kill Jojima since Jojima's partner accidentally shot and killed Ryu's little brother while he was dying at the hands of Ryu and his friends. How can you blame Jojima for your brother's death, Ryu? Ryu's brother was skateboarding when he was introduced. He only shreds during that introduction. I guess what they say is true. You either skate or you die. If he was on a board, that bullet definitely would have missed him. If I made this movie, Ryu's brother would have been constantly skating. The gore is fun when it makes an appearance. The blood spray effect that is prevalent in Japanese movies is included. Jojima ripping off his own arm and then randomly having a bazooka on his back is a blast. The intro and final showdown are over the top and oozing with fun. The middle is mostly dull. 20 minutes could have easily been cut. Dead or Alive has its moments, but it doesn't work as a whole. Go check out clips. Number 5, Cherry Falls, 2000, directed by Jeffrey Wright. A killer is murdering virgins. The sheriff's virgin daughter, Jody, is attacked by the killer. She gets away. Jody is friends with one of her teachers named Mr. Marliston. Jody finds out that her father and his friends forced themselves on a woman named Laura Lee when they were in high school. Laura Lee is the lead suspect. Jody goes over to Marliston's house. He's the killer. He reveals he's Laura Lee and possibly the sheriff's son. Jody's ex-boyfriend Kenny shows up and rescues Jody. Her dad is killed. Marliston attacks a party where kids are trying to lose their virginities. Jody tosses Marliston out a window. He's impaled on a broken railing. 
A cop then fills Marliston with lead when he grabs a kid. Marliston is the killer. You know what horror movies are always fun. Early 2000s slashers with decent budgets and recognizable names. They either end up being legitimately good like House of Wax, or goofy and entertaining like this movie, Cherry Falls. Cherry Falls is one of the most by-the-numbers slashers that has ever been created. You have the virgin protagonist with a sheriff relative who's closest friends with the person who ends up being the killer, who's getting revenge for their parent who was wronged in the past. The killer dresses up like his mom. This doesn't seem to be a queer coding thing. It seems to have been done to try and trick the viewer into thinking the killer was someone besides the very obvious teacher. Still, he does continue to dress up like his mom when the cat's out of the bag, so who knows what they were really going for. More tropes! There is a scene where Jody goes to the library to look at old newspaper scans. She probably shouldn't have gone to the library given that the only twist on the usual tropes is that instead of the virgins never dying, they're the ones being hunted. The library is the first place the virgin killer is going to stock. It's open season on virgins. Isn't that kind of dumb? If the kids know the killer is specifically targeting virgins, they can do something about that. Has anyone ever been safe in a horror movie because they were a born-again virgin? Surely that's been a thing or at least a joke in one of the hundreds of horror movies I've seen. Anyway, back to Cherry Falls. The kids find out that virgins always die, so they plan a sex party. It's a decent idea. Thing is, by the time the killer shows up, at least an hour or two after the party started, no one had actually started doing it yet. If it wasn't for Jody tossing Marliston out the window, everyone at the party could have been slashed. Marliston does slash a decent amount of people at the party. When everyone's running around like a horror movie slasher popped up with a knife, the horror movie slasher starts taking wild swings at everybody near him with a knife. This arm flailing cut a kid at random assault didn't seem to up the body count at all though. Cherry Falls emits a slapstick vibe for 99% of the movie. The other 1% is a completely out of place scene where what happened to Laura Lee is shown. There was no reason for that flashback. Marliston could have just told the audience an abridged version. Right after it's shown, there's another flashback of toddler Marliston being comically whipped with the belt. Trust me, that's definitely disturbing on paper, but the way it's executed in Cherry Falls makes a mom taking a belt to her young boy funny. The best slapstick sequence by far is when the killer chases Jody into a science classroom where intense techno music starts playing. Big mistake, pal. Don't you know that Jody is a beaker-throwing champion? Jody pelts the killer with beaker after beaker with incredible precision. After showering the dingus with glass, she then cuts a rope that's holding up a life-size model of a great white that turns into an impromptu killer battering ram that sends Marliston through a glass case. It's one of the most entertaining and goofiest protagonists fighting back against the slasher scenes of all time. Another goofball scene is started with a kid deciding to get in impaled Marliston's grill. Marliston is obviously still alive and going to pop up for one last scare. His eyes open and he grabs the kid. So a nearby cop comes into frame guns blazing. The cop who is randomly dual wielding pistols shoots off Marliston's hand and fills him with bullets for good measure. The gore for this and the kills is acceptable. It's not going to wow anyone. Oh, the acting? It's not stellar. 
Brittany Murphy played Jody, who might as well be an alien. Her performance is bizarre. It's an enjoyable performance due to how weird it is. Jay Moore played Marleston, and he's not the worst, he's just bland. For some reason, there is a lot of sexual tension between Jody and her parents. She kisses her mom on the lips multiple times, and her dad falls on top of her while teaching her self-defense in such a manner that it looks like the intro to a dirty movie. It's awkward and strange seeing that she has more chemistry with her parents than with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Kenny, who she tried to seduce by making him bite her feet while she kicked him in the face. That's literally something that happens. The killer's motives? Stupid. Why are you killing innocent kids? If he was only targeting the children of the men that attacked his mom, that would make some sense. He does technically kill two of those men, and it's possible the others that were no longer in the town were also hunted down. If you can look past an unnecessary flashback, Cherry Falls is a goof-tastic by-the-number slasher. You'll be able to see all the beats coming a mile away, but the flavor from all the zaniness will keep you enthralled throughout. Number 6, The Brain from Planet Eris. 1957, directed by Nathan Duran. An alien named Gore possesses the body of a man named Steve after killing his friend Dan. Gore blows up a plane and kills other people that get in the way of his world domination plan. Another alien named Vol tells Steve's fiancée Sally and her father how to kill Gore before hiding in George, Steve and Sally's dog. Gore leaves Steve's body and takes a physical form to recharge. Steve sees a note Sally left to inform him of Gore's weak spot. He takes an axe to Gore's weak spot and kills him. Vol leaves without saying a word. Gore is the killer. I'm in the middle of a Malcolm in the middle rewatch. I watch the show all the way through at least once every couple years. It's one of the best shows ever created, if not the best. While I was watching the intro for the possible thousandth time, I thought to myself, wait a minute, some of these weird clips are from horror movies. I watch horror movies. I haven't seen these. I looked up the clip sources. Two of them are horror movies, Creature from the Haunted Sea and The Brain from Planet Eris. The latter came out first, so I decided to start with The Brain Movie. The Brain from Planet Eris is a goofy black-and-white alien invasion movie from the 50s. It's from an era where similar movies were released all the time. Strangely enough, I haven't seen a ton of movies from around this time and should probably remedy that. Baby steps. The Brain from Planet Eris, which I'll shorthand to The Brain, stars John Agar as Steve. He's campy and fantastic as the man possessed. His joy and maniacal laughter after he blows up planes and bomb testing sites with his mind is perfectly evil. He's the standout by far. The only other person that's acting is kind of special is Dale Tate who played a professor. That's not special though. What is, is his voice acting performance as Gore and Vol. At times he sounds almost exactly like Darth Vader. I wonder if Lucas was inspired by the voice distortion in the brain. Gore meticulously planned on possessing Steve's body to gain an audience with the military. You'd think a giant brain would think for a second and possess a high-ranking officer instead, but Gore isn't the smartest alien brain terrorist. 
He doesn't even hide somewhere when he takes a physical form that can easily be destroyed. Vol barely helps defeat Gore. The intel he provides is somewhat helpful. When you're able to hit him, hit him in a specific spot. Steve probably would have died if he axed Gore in any spots besides the fissure of Rolando, which is called the central sulcus in present day. But it's hard to believe that Steve wouldn't have at least incapacitated Gore by giving him 30 whacks or so. Assuming that Vol has the same powers as Gore, Vol could have blown up the enemy with his own telekinetic powers. Instead, he lets the humans deal with the creature that can nuke stuff just by looking at it, and leaves when they beat Gore without saying anything. Vol talking to Sally. My job here is done. But you didn't do anything. As far as old-timey movies go, there is a lot of death in the brain. Gore kills three people by looking at them. He then kills around 60 more by blowing up planes. The practical effects make up for the bodies Gore burned with his mind is barely noticeable, but the best effects work in the movie is Steve's possessed eyes. They look legitimately disturbing. He has the eyes of a man possessed. They almost look like glass. Turns out the effect was done by using special contact lenses lined with metal foil. I wear contacts. I'm not putting metal foil on my eyeballs. Not even if a giant space brain possesses me. More on the brains being kind of dumb, Vol has to choose a body to possess to stay close to Gore. Does he choose Sally? No, he chooses George the dog. It makes some sense. A dog's body is completely superior to humans, barring the lack of thumbs. Thing is, a dog can't accompany a person to a top secret meeting. Vol should have taken over a small bug or something if he was truly trying to be inconspicuous. It's not like he had to worry about being crushed or anything, since Gore shows the audience that the inhabited body becomes impervious to damage after he goads a man into shooting him. The only thing left to note is the fact that Possessed Steve calls Sally a stupid little idiot in an endearing tone. I'm going to start saying that to people. The brain from Planet Eris is a fun time. The brain effects are delightful. Consider checking it out if you're in the mood for a silly older movie. Number 7, The Faculty, 1998, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Class of 1999 made me want to rewatch a superior high school teachers aren't what they appear to be movie. I remembered the fact that all the actors that have ever existed are in the movie, but I was still surprised to see so many familiar faces. Jordana Brewster, Josh Hartnett, Clea Duvall, Salma Hayek, Famke Johnson, Christopher McDonald, Robert Patrick, Usher, John Stewart, Elijah Wood, and the bad Masterson brother. Somehow it slipped my mind that Robert Rodriguez directed The Faculty. I'm a fan of his stuff. Desperado, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Spy Kids, Spy Kids 2, Sin City, Machete, From Dust Till Dawn, Alita Battle Angel. For some reason it seems cool to dog on Robert Rodriguez these days, but the dude is a very impressive resume. So what if he wants to make some kids films? The Faculty has some Age CGI, but most of the alien stuff looks solid. There's a gag I remember where Jon Stewart comes back with an eye patch after the kids have to kill alien-possessed Jon Stewart by stabbing him in the eye after slicing off some of his fingers. I guess the damage to his body was permanent since the aliens inside him were also killed by the dehydrating drug scat. 
there's a part in the movie where characters are asking Josh Hartnett, the drug dealer, for some scat, which I had to respond with, Y'all remember Scatman John? What were we going through back then? This is the seventh topic, so I'm keeping this section short and weird. The faculty is a great time. Check it out if you haven't. If you're somehow still on the fence, the screenplay was written by Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 92, Corpse Brides, Killer Teachers, and Terrorist Brains. If you dug what I buried into your ears, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. I thought I was going to be covering more recent, well-received movies that were nominated for Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, but you know me, I gravitate to garbage. Next episode will be out on March 21st. Until then, don't go near any teachers. They could be killer androids or parasitic aliens.